Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to the Kidney Commute podcast, an interprofessional NKF creation. My name is Becky Ness. I'm a PA in nephrology and I have no relevant disclosures. I will be the host of today's discussion on vitamins and supplement use in chronic kidney disease. We'll start by an introduction of all of our panel members, and then we'll get into the conversation. Hi, my name is Jill Hoyt, and I am a registered dietitian. I work for the Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I have no relevant disclosures. Hi, my name is Dr. Emily Holm. I am a clinical pharmacist with the Mayo Clinic Health System, and I have no relevant disclosures to share. Hello, everyone. My name is Martha Simon. I'm a kidney transplant recipient um, of five years, and I'm also a senior analyst at the Vita Kidney Care, and I have no disclosures. Hello. My name is Dr. Brian Tucker. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and I do not have any disclosures. So we'll start off. Emily, this question is for you, but please, everybody else, chime in as you have uh, pertinent information to share for our audience today. Emily, is there a role for vitamins and or supplements for patients with chronic kidney disease? Hello. Yes, I would say there is definitely a role um, for vi- for mostly on the vitamin side of things versus if we're talking about herbal supplements. The human body needs about 13 vitamins to function properly. And folks with chronic kidney disease can have a variety of things that happen that can definitely waste some of those vitamins that are needed. So sometimes it's because of dietary restrictions, which I'm sure our dietitian could fill us in on that um, poor appetite, sometimes the disruption in mealtimes due to treatments and appointments, medication side effects, and then vitamin losses if they're on dialysis. So in you know my studies, basically it's mostly the water-soluble vitamins or like a good B-complex are kind of what we're aiming for with supplementation um, that has decent research that we should replace some of those. But we also have to be careful about the fat-soluble vitamins. And those are mainly vitamin A, vitamin D, which that will come into play later, um, vitamin E and vitamin K. Definitely vitamin A and vitamin E are the ones that we generally don't want to supplement with because you can have toxicity issues. Vitamin D will definitely play a role later but usually that's guided by the provider and following labs to dose the vitamin D and kind of what form we're using. And then I have seen some mixed things on vitamin K. So if you guys have anything to add with that, what you're seeing, you know, in practice, I've read some things where, you know, we don't want to supplement with it, but then there's some data showing that maybe it could be beneficial for bone health. So kind of back and forth on that one. Dr. Tucker have something to add there? 
I, I have one thing to add. I did a study, uh, a systematic review in 2015, looking at vitamin supplementation in the dialysis patients. And, and the systematic review actually showed that the B vitamins, even though there's theory behind giving B vitamins, there's no actually good data that it improves anything. And so the even the guidelines are very cautiously um, saying it's not unreasonable, but they don't directly recommend it. Would it be more like per case, uh, case by case? That's kind of what I'm seeing. It's like, we don't have any controlled, like double blinded guidelines. It's all case reports. And I would say more so more in the dialysis population is kind of where we're seeing the vitamins play more of a role since dialysis can pull those off. But then in our just chronic kidney disease, I would, you know, suppose it would be depending on what stage we're in. The other thing that I was kind of interested in reading through some of the data showing that sometimes the the labs that we use to look at vitamins aren't always completely accurate. Do you guys see that as well in practice that you worry about? Yeah, I, I think it's important that we, the the review I did also commented on that as well. You're absolutely right. The, the test that we do for vitamins, number one, we don't know if the level actually reflects the activity of the vitamin. And so, um, but, but there is data or not great data showing that the levels of B vitamins may not drop as much as we think they do um, per each dialysis patient. But I do agree with you that the decision to supplement is a patient to patient case. And some patients are at risk for nutritional deficiencies. Jill, from a dietitian perspective in those patients, particularly as we focus on that dialysis patient or that later stage chronic kidney disease, how do you help patients navigate this when they come to you with these questions about, well, can I just take a pill instead of eat this food or with the dietary restrictions that they're mm -hmm. facing? How do you help them navigate this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm always, you know, an advocate for let's get our nutrition, vitamins, minerals from food first. And I would like to say that the the renal diet has the restrictions have really, our recommendations have really um, lessened in the past number of years, or I shouldn't say number of recent years, just a few, few years or so. We don't talk about um, really limiting, you know, all those important fruits and vegetables anymore um, for like the reasons of restricting potassium. They do more good than harm when we eat them. Um, as Emily was saying, you know, patients tend to, they have poor appetites a lot. Uh, they have, you know, missed, they miss meals because of having to go to dialysis or other treatments and other appointments and all that stuff. So we, in our practice, we, we do recommend they, or most patients recommend have a, a vitamin. Um, there's the renal vitamins, which are mainly just the B complex, whether they're helping a whole lot, I guess maybe, maybe we don't know. A lot of our patients though, do take just an over-the-counter multivitamin. If they do that, we usually tell them like get one that doesn't have like a hundred over a hundred percent of like anything on there. Um, especially we watch out for potassium and phosphorus on those. But I really focus on the food. Let's try to get more food in. I really push the fruits and vegetables with our patients. So yeah, that's how I really try to approach it for them. And Marcus, as a patient who's navigated the 
chronic kidney disease clinic and has been on dialysis and now a transplant recipient. How did you feel with maybe what could have been conflicting recommendations based on peers that you were talking to or things that you were seeing or reading versus what you were being told by your nephrology care team? Uh, For me, I think it was all about just having those conversations with my care team. If it was something that I wanted to prove or just find out, hey, would I get any benefit from this? I would speak with them. Uh, Most importantly, I didn't want to take anything that would have no impact or go a step further, would have a negative impact on my health. So that's just how I approached it um, when I was on dialysis, um, even more so when I'm on transplant, even when I see my other uh, physicians and they may um, recommend me taking something, I always run it by my transplant team before a decision is made. And I let them know up front that if my transplant team does not agree, I'm not taking it. Well, thank you. I'm going to bring us back to vitamin D. Both Emily and um, Dr. Tucker had spoken about this because there are classes, for lack of a better defining term, of supplements that can be of benefit in this specific um, patient based on lab results and indications. But you both had talked about labs. In particular, what labs are we looking at, the validity of the labs or timing of the labs, and then how do you help your patients navigate Which supplement? Is it prescription? Can they buy it over the counter due to the cost of some prescriptions? Like, how do you help them navigate that? Well, I would say, you know, especially for dialysis patients, I know labs are getting done almost daily, if not every time they're having their run. And, you know, for those patients, we're looking at a combination of calcium, phosphorus, parathyroid hormone. And then that vitamin D is actually an analog that is injected and could be adjusted um, very frequently. As for the patients that aren't on dialysis, I would want to lean into Dr. Tucker's recommendations on where, when we would start um, certain vitamin Ds, whether it's D2 or D3, and what lab goals you are looking for. Yeah, we, we when they're not on dialysis, generally we're checking vitamin D, the 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And if that's low, uh, then we generally replace it to a normal level, above 20 or 30 um, at least. And there's many ways to treat vitamin D deficiency in kidney disease patients. And the recommendations actually say you treat it exactly as you would a normal non-kidney patient. As for other vitamin D supplements, like the active form, like 125, a calcitriol, um, that is not so much treated as an outpatient as commonly because secondary hyperparathyroidism is later on in the disease course. But with general vitamin D deficiency, we treat it just like a normal patient. And there's been kind of a back and forth in the literature about the 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels and when are they looked at in the dialysis patient? Should they be looked at in the dialysis patient? And the goals seem to be a little bit different. Can you speak to that? Isn't there something with how the GFR decreases that the vitamin D labs also follow that? Is that what you're getting at, Becky? 
That was the initial kind of the, the, when I started practice a long time ago, it was once the patient has started on dialysis, we don't look at inactive vitamin D anymore. We never look at a 25 hydroxy vitamin D. We're really just looking at the phosphorus, the magnesium, the calcium, the PTH, right? Because we know about the secondary hyperparathyroid. And once they've reached dialysis, they're not converting to the active form of vitamin D. And that's where the focus is. There have been an increasing amount of articles or snippets within articles about if we're struggling in meeting those parathyroid hormone, those bone mineral goals in the dialysis patient to look at the 25-hydroxy vitamin D to see if they're incredibly deficient. I'm talking single digits. But again, there's not an abundance of literature. So that's where I was kind of wondering what has the team's experience been with those? Because I'll bring in the pandemic that we're on the other side of right now. There was a lot in the literature and during COVID about taking significant levels of vitamin D as a supplement to help either treat or prevent COVID. And in our dialysis units, as well as in our CKD clinics, we had a lot of patients on really, really high doses of D2, D3. And then they were starting to have symptoms of, you know, hypervitaminosis D. And when you would check a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level, even on our dialysis patients, sometimes they were in the 80, 90 plus. I had one that was over 150. Um, because of the sheer amount of vitamin D, this was a CKD three B four patient. So I was just kind of curious what anybody else has seen on that, and how you were kind of helping to helping your patients navigate that. Because again, you know, it's a fat soluble vitamin. We know patients with chronic kidney disease, usually starting three B four and beyond, tend to start to have some of those bone mineral abnormalities, the development of secondary hyperparathyroid. But there's still a lot in the general literature. Uh, you know, you see it on daytime television. You see it in you know regular commercials, online advertisements for vitamin D to fix so many things. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult thing to navigate, especially when we feel like we can't go off of the labs. I know in our practice, we don't, I don't see a vitamin D level checked very often. Um, I mean, and I'm talking mostly in dialysis because that's where I primarily work. Um, but I'll see, you know, if we have patients with, you know, I have a few that with a lower calcium, like in the low sevens, seven, two, seven, four. And of course, we're always very careful to supplement extra calcium. And usually the reason the calcium is low is maybe the vitamin D. Um, and I just asked the doctors, can we check it? And they're, they're fine with it, but it's not definitely not a routinely thing done routinely. And we often find that it's low and then they'll, they'll supplement with the, the vitamin D3. Yeah. I've seen the same thing too. When I was on dialysis, even post-transplant, they may check it once a year. And that's it. And for me, I know when mine was low, it's kind of concerning because you're not getting kind of like a frequent check to know when it's hit that normal range. You're pretty much having to wait to the next yearly lab pool to find out. And Marcus now is a transplant recipient. Are they checking that with any regularity? Um, once a year is being checked. So that kind of brings me to the next topic of conversation about 
are there specific vitamins or supplements that universally should be absolutely avoided in your CKD patient, be it CKD3, CKD5 prior to dialysis, on dialysis, and even transplant? Um, I'm going to comment on again what what um, what Emily said. Um, the The guidelines currently say that uh, vitamin A and E are you should not um, supplement with those because of the risk of toxicity. And the KDGO guidelines all or KDOKI guidelines also uh, recommend not to give selenium and zinc based on the lack of of benefit. And so those are three or four supplements or vitamins that, that are absolutely a uh, no for the guidelines. And more on like the herbal side of things, probably the number one thing that I have seen reports on has, has to be licorice because that one can actually cause an acute um, injury to the kidney couple other ones that were mentioned were chromium and then cranberry. And you think, you know, we have a lot of people that are trying to prevent, you know, UTIs and then cranberry can increase the oxalate formulation, just like high dose vitamin C can. And then anything that is a supplement that is kind of like a stimulant. So, you know, the one that comes to my mind is the ephedra products. They're really not too much on the market anymore, but sometimes they're disguised under different names like Kava Kava. So all of those can basically any, any type of stimulant can kind of aggravate the kidney, maybe inflame it. So we want to avoid those. Um, another one that I found interesting um, was lysine. You know, we see a lot of lysine used for antiviral that can actually lead to Fanconi syndrome. And, um, and then also with vitamin C, I know that the, the guidelines um, do recommend some low doses of vitamin C, but it's the high dose that we need to avoid. And back to when we're looking at the B complexes, you need to be very careful on getting, if you're going to supplement with a B-complex, make sure it is a renal B-complex because those basically have a lower dose of the vitamin C. Anything that you buy over the counter that isn't formulated for the kidneys, it's going to have a whopping dose of vitamin C in there as like your antioxidant. One thing I wanted to ask the group, what, what are the thoughts on um, creatine? I, I have read several mixed studies on that particular supplement. So I'd be interested to hear if you, if anyone has any additional information on that. I often get asked about creatine because it can influence a creatinine uh, measurement and we use creatinine to measure kidney function. And if you're going to influence that measurement and diagnose someone with kidney disease, based on a supplement they're taking, that's uh, a dangerous slippery slope. So uh, creatine itself is not inherently dangerous, but it's super, super important that anyone taking creatine tell their nephrologist or their primary care doctor that they're on it because we need to know that there's other ways to measure kidney function. And if you're taking a medication like creatine that will influence the result of creatinine, it's important that we use other methods to measure your kidney function. 
I also wanted to ask for the team's thoughts about probiotics and where you all follow the use of those. I don't have too many people that actually, I don't think I have anyone right now that's taking them. I've had a couple ask about it. I think they're generally safe. But again, you can get, you know, probiotic benefits from foods, um, you know, your yogurt, your kefir as a late stage di or a kidney, CKD or dialysis, you know, the, that might pose a little bit of a problem because those are higher in phosphorus. Um, so you might have to watch the doses of those. Kimchi, kabucha, some people will use those for get some probiotic benefits, but I don't know the probiotic. Emily, you might be able to answer this better. I mean, that's like, there's like a million different ones out there too. They're kind of like herbal supplements. I mean, I, you know, some are refrigerated, some aren't, some are, but I, I don't know enough about them to make a, a great recommendation to patients. I don't know, does anyone else have any? Yeah. I mean, with the probiotics, again, like, like you said, Jill, um, tons of different kinds. Now I would say not all probiotics are created equal. And I would, if you're interested in a probiotic, I would narrow it to what you are looking for, because we do have some probiotics that are more formulated for mental health, because, you know, we know that there's certain probiotics that can help, you know, gut health, help increase the production of serotonin and that sort of thing. Or are you looking for more like GI distress? And once you kind of have it figured out, like what is your end goal with the probiotic, then try to laser focus on the specific strains that are looked at to work on your end goal. But I would say the main thing with that is looking at the additives and checking that out with your doctor or your pharmacist to make sure there isn't some sort of herbal in there or antioxidant in there um, in addition to the probiotic. So again, like your safest bet is probably through food, like Jill was saying, but there are lots of products out there that are very focused on specific things when it's related to probiotics. Yeah, Marcus, I would say, I was telling my patients, if you can bring the bottle in so we can look at it, that would be great. So we can see, you know, sometimes, you know, just to say what, you know, can I take a probiotic? Well, I don't know. <laughs> But anytime, you know, I've had patients, whether they brought me the bottle in or, you know, they just take a picture of something. And so you can see the label and they can, you know, show it on us on their phone. That can help us out a lot to give you a better answer or to give our patients a better answer. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. I know for me, when I have my transplant follow-ups, I have to take in everything that I'm taking, um, not just medications, but also mm -hmm. vitamins and supplements. Mm -hmm. So pharmacists can continue to take a look and adjust. That's how I go about making my decisions. I think a lot of patients might not be aware of that. I've heard some mention, just kind of like the probiotics. I think those are conversations they had, you know, they're not asking their care team. So, yeah, I appreciate the feedback. Another common category that I get questioned about both in clinic and in the dialysis unit is, what can I use for sleep? There's lots of different melatonin formulations. There's ashwagandha. There's a whole litany of advertised, I'm going to use air quotes, recommended, depending on who your source is, sleep agents. And outside of you know your good sleep hygiene recommendations, 
what are some of the recommendations that you are familiar with, that you're comfortable with, or that you're like, absolutely not under any circumstances should you take this? Well, I feel like the first thing that always patients try has to be the, the melatonin products, which I kind of go back and forth on melatonin uh, because, you know, it it is mainly designed for more jet lag versus a chronic kind of insomnia picture. And there are some conflicting, there is conflicting data with uh, melatonin with the longer you use it, then the less melatonin that your body may make itself. Um, The other thing, and this is just me being a nerdy pharmacist, I do a lot of work with pharmacogenomics, and I would say there is a good number of patients that I see, almost 90% of my patients where we test their DNA to figure out what meds may work better for them, about 90% of patients rapidly metabolize melatonin anyway. So, you know, that one, I don't foresee issues kidney-wise because it goes through the liver, but will it really be that effective that it's wishy-washy? Now, another supplement that is used a lot for sleep would be the different forms of magnesium. Now, with that being, you know, in that category, you know, I would need to look that up when it comes to chronic kidney disease, or if one of you guys happen to know if that is one that we generally stay away from. I didn't see that when I was reviewing material. Dr. Tucker, do you have something to add there? Oh, no, I, I've, I've um, written some papers on magnesium and it's, um, I generally don't recommend it unless you're getting levels checked at a regular basis. Okay. The main reason why is because it's primarily excreted in the urine. And if you have kidney disease, it's so easily can get built up. And so as long as you're getting levels checked, it's okay to take. But if you're not, I would not recommend taking it. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was thinking, but I, I was not completely sure on that one. One supplement for sleep that has caught my attention, and this is a little bit newer, but it's called Mazenol. Has anyone run across Mazenol? So Mazenol is derived from corn and it is a supplement that binds to the melatonin receptor to help your body make some of its own melatonin. And the studies that I have read on it um, seem pretty promising. Side effect profile is decent, um, but it So far, I haven't been able to find a whole lot of products with it that also don't contain melatonin. And um, I found one so far, and it was formulated for children, which was interesting. So we've talked about some of the more common vitamins, supplements. Let's talk about foods for a minute. You know, we've talked about the importance of getting our nutrition from foods. But for those patients who don't have much of an appetite or maybe due to other reasons they have early satiety or they are having nausea or digestive issues, are there food supplements, whether it's powders, whether it's beverage, you know, drinks like Ensure or Boost or Nepro that we should either encourage our patients to consider because they're balanced and they don't have the extra fillers 
or are there specific ones that we really want to encourage them to avoid because of maybe the inactive or the filler ingredients that could compromise a patient with kidney disease? So I would say, I mean, we, we rec or use them here for our patients. I'm actually in our dialysis unit for our patients that are, you know, low protein, low weight. We know they're not getting enough. We offer them um, three different options and Nepro is one of them. So that's, um, if you don't know, that's like the renal version of Ensure. So it provides more calories, more protein, but less phosphorus and less potassium because we want to need to limit those likely. Then we offer one called Liquicel, so that's primarily just protein, but no extra fats or carbs, so it's lower calorie, and it's a really low volume. So for patients that need to limit their volume, they can or limit their liquid, they could do that. And then we have one called Gelatine, so it's a high-protein jello. Again, we always like things, I like things better from food. I mean, I'll even go the route of talking to patients about ways to kind of make their own shake at home with just normal food from the grocery store. Because um, kind of a downside or a challenge of some of these products is they're they're expensive. They're not prescription. They're not covered by any type of prescription coverage or insurance unless it's your main source of of nutrition. If a person, for example, is solely dependent on a, a tube feeding, um, but for someone just to drink it, it's you know they're very expensive. There are some programs out there that can help offset the cost or help assistance with that, but. Yeah, I don't think they're they're not unsafe. I mean, like the, the general ones you'll know are here of Boost and Sure. Um, those will be higher in potassium and phosphorus. So depending on the stage of the patient, um, even if they're on dialysis, if their their labs are fine, some of them, plenty of them can tolerate it just fine. Um, if they're not, especially if they're not eating very much otherwise. And then I guess a nice perk of it is it's easy. You know, it's a meal in a bottle. If someone is, you know, they're elderly, they're at home, their ability to make a meal is, it's hard. You know, do I rather they, you know, have that as a supplement to go along with, you know, their bowl of cereal or peanut butter sandwich? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm always food first, but I think they're fine. I think they have their place and, and definitely appropriate to recommend at times. Anyone else want to add to that? No. <laughs> I'm going to add a layer to that question. Yeah. So in the patient who, as you laid out, right, were either home alone, find it difficult to cook for themselves or find it have physical challenges for cooking for themselves. Let's take it in a different direction. What about some of those meal replacement options? And there's a number of them available commercially for our patients with varying stages of chronic kidney disease and or transplant who want to lose weight and they're going to use this meal replacement option for weight loss. So when you say meal replacement, do you mean like a, a sh like a shake, like a, a shake or a powder slim? or a bar or a, yeah, without throwing um, out all of the multitude of brand names. Cause yeah. there's many out there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess it kind of goes back to when we we're talking about probiotics or, or whatever, you know, bring in, show me what you you're thinking of using. Let's take a look at it together. You know, I never want to poo poo a patient right away. Like if they're, especially, I mean, if they are motive or wanting to lose weight, maybe it's for a transplant, especially let's help figure out a way it might be okay. I mean, I, I can't, I can't say yes or no, you know, off the top of my head, but 
I would, I would like to see exactly what they're taking. Cause yeah, there could be things, I mean, it could be something super duper high in potassium um, that then we wouldn't want them to have it or be very cautious with it. I'm going to make sure it had adequate protein too. If this is, if you're replacing the meal completely with this, you know, we want to make sure they maintain their nutrition status. And then of course, we always just want people to encourage them to lose weight in a, a safe way. You know, it, we don't want it to be starvation mode, even though I know people, we're all eager to lose it quick and fast. Does that answer the question or answer your question? I have a question if that's okay. Yeah. What about protein goals? Because sometimes aren't they modified in chronic kidney disease? Or yes. Diagnosis? Yep. So the the goals change really start from stage three and on. And so you kind of have starting stage three, moderate reduction, and then they get stricter, lower recommendations, you know, through four and five. And then once they get on dialysis, then they would actually go back to normal or even higher because dialysis takes away some protein. We want to make sure we replete that and maintain their, their nutrition status. Um, in the earlier stages or, you know, three to five pre-dialysis, um, we not only focus on the amount of protein, but the type. And we're really, really focusing on more that plant-based, um, you know, cutting back on animal proteins can really do a lot to save someone's kidneys. So it's not just about the amount, but the type of protein. So then, you know, you have some patients that might be, you know, in those stages where, you know, taking protein powders for fitness reasons, and sometimes that can pose a problem. They don't like it when we recommend that they should probably cut back on those. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like mm -hmm. if you have someone that's trying to lose weight and then they're trying to do like macros and carb cycling and that high amount yeah. of protein, like yeah. how do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, carefully. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, I think you just, you know, you have to meet the patient in the middle be like, this is why I'm recommending this, you know, and I want to help you save your kidneys, right? You know, or this is what I want to help you do, you know, and I think if you continue this down this road, you know, you're going to not have good outcomes. So what what are you willing to do? Um, I did have a patient, this kind of interesting story. He was a young gentleman. Most of my patients are, are fairly elderly, but he was a young gentleman who very fitness, you know, related. He took just tons of supplements and he actually brought all the pictures in of his labels. So I knew all of it. Um, he wasn't CKD. He was a kidney stone patient, had hundreds of stones tons of vitamin C in these supplements too. So we were like, whoa, you're getting all this protein, all this vitamin C, this, this is part of the problem. Um, and he was just like very reluctant to, he hated the answer that, you know, we were recommending that he should cut back on these or, or actually I would say cut them out because he was getting way more protein than he needed. So yeah, we just, I don't know, you just do what you can do, tell them the reason why and, but listen to their side too. That's important. They're, they're, they're doing what they think is right. Marcus, as a patient along your CKD journey from pre-dialysis to dialysis and now to transplant, can you share your experience, both positive and frustration, with the changing recommendations mm -hmm. in terms of fluids and protein as you navigated your journey? I can't speak as far as like the pre-dialysis. I kind of crashed into dialysis with the condition that I had. 
So yeah, it is a chore, um, adjusting to dialysis, especially those dietary restrictions. When that's not something you had the opportunity to grow into, uh, kind of phase into. I know for me, as far as kind of like protein, I need to get like my protein and albumin levels up. So having that higher protein mark was kind of difficult for me initially. So I did use those protein supplements. It was a protein bar, a protein shake, along with uh, what I was eating until I adjusted to being able to meet those goals within my own diet. As far as any fluid restrictions, I mean, I mean, it's super difficult, but you know, you do what you have to do to maximize your health and your goals at that particular time. So uh, for me, I just found it comforting. I, I think for me, that's why just having a great relationship with your care team, like Gia said, it's kind of like a give and take and you're able to voice your concerns and also be able to learn why this may not be the best thing for you to do. Um, and then adjust for that. And a lot of time it is that meeting in the middle having a compromise uh, because as a patient, yeah, um, and it's true, you think you're doing the best thing, but then um, you also need to learn some things as well that you may not know. So just being in that unfamiliar territory, um, it can be difficult trying to navigate those different places. But I think once I got into a comfort zone, it was fairly easy and you know how to, what conversations to have, you know, the expectations to reach the goals that you wanted to reach. Thank you. That kind of will bring us back full circle. Dr. Tucker, when you're counseling patients who need to change their eating habits or they are asking about various vitamins and supplements to help meet those goals, how do you counsel your patients? So in general, um, I I completely agree with what um, Jill had, had said in, in this podcast. Primarily, it's super important to, to get everything through diet, or I think it's the best to get everything through diet. Um, I do not recommend, generally speaking, for any of my patients to be taking vitamins and supplements unless they specifically need it or that level is low. For example, we talked about vitamin D. But the current guidelines, the Kadoki 2020 guidelines, they don't recommend supplementation. They they recommend meeting with a physician, with a dietitian to see if you're even at risk for uh, nutritional deficiencies. And so if you're at risk, then the discussion comes up whether you really need to take supplements or vitamins, but the majority of people are, are, are not at risk. And, and it's super important that if you're taking something that you don't really need, uh, that it, even if it's not doing anything, it could do some harm. And so generally speaking, I don't recommend any vitamin supplements unless needed. And if I am concerned about their diet, um, my first plan is definitely to send them to a nutritionist, a dietitian to, to go over a, a game plan with them. Thank you so much. As we wrap up this episode of the NKF Kidney Commute podcast, could each of you share, if you already haven't, your most important takeaway that you want listeners to glean from this episode? I would say with the amount of supplements on the market and how that is like a multi-billion dollar industry, if something is claiming to reverse your chronic kidney disease or to cure your chronic di kidney disease, I want you to run <laughs> away from that. Like, in general, when it comes to like herbals and supplements, if it sounds too good to be true, and this is for anything, 
it's probably not going to work. I would end by saying the the famous quote, let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food. Um, don't be afraid to eat. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Get your, your vitamins and minerals that way. Far less expensive and less pills. <laughs> Marcus or Dr. Tucker, any other parting words of wisdom for our uh, listeners today? I would just say for patients to be empowered to participate in having these conversations with their care team, to have their shared decision-making. I think in the absence of those conversations, there's where things can kind of go downhill and you end up taking things that you shouldn't be taking um, that's not healthy for you. And I think the more those conversations are had, then um, the more everyone can be on the same page and you can avoid kind of like those hazards along the way. Like, like Emily said, I generally, I don't recommend taking um, anything that's not reckon, recommended by, by a health professional. And all these wild claims are wild for a reason. And if they worked, they would be medicine and we would prescribe them. Um, and so generally speaking, I would say, would not take any supplement, mineral, vitamin, unless you're talking with your doctor or some health professional that you need this vitamin. All right. Well, thank you very much for participating in this episode of The Kidney Commute. Thank you to our panel members for their contributions. Surrounding this important discussion, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us on this ride of The Kidney Commute. Remember, eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let the new perspectives inspire your practice. 